Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Uh, don't know if you can tell, but I'm a little sick at the moment. I'm uh, probably a combination of being in super cold Calgary, although I don't know if that's a good medical explanation. And uh, well, my voice is a bit hoarse because I've been speaking a bunch this week. I, I gave three different talks this week, uh, which was fun, but you are the victim as uh, my voice is not as good. So I'll, I'll keep the intro and outro short today, which is fine because we have uh, a great show. We've got a really interesting guest, Gregory Zuckerman, author of the new book, the frackers, which has gotten a lot of attention, um, and is uh, you know from his perspective tells the story of the uh, revolution known as hydraulic fracturing, or more more accurately maybe horizontal drilling, and hydraulic fracturing, and and talks about many of the different uh, personalities involved and uh, the the sequence of events, and uh, really you know really fascinating stuff. So without further ado. I'll bring on Greg Zuckerman, and I'll speak with you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Gregory Zuckerman, author of The Frackers, which has the subtitle The Outrageous Inside Story of the New Billionaire Wildcatters. Uh, Pretty compelling title. Greg, welcome to Power Hour. Oh, great to be here. All right, let's start at the beginning. This hasn't been your issue forever. You know, energy hasn't been your issue forever. In the, in the book, you tell an interesting story about how you got involved. How did you get involved in this topic? So, yeah, I'm a uh, financial reporter. I wrote a f- book a few years ago about the financial meltdown and the people that anticipated it. Um, it's called The Greatest Trade Ever. And I've written about all kinds of uh, financial topics, but I'm not an energy uh, person uh, per se, but it did occur to me about two years ago that there's nothing more important and more interesting um, going on in the U.S. economy right now than this uh, resurgence, this revolution going on, thanks to fracking and the horizontal drilling. So it also occurred to me that no one had really told the story of how it all happened, who the people are behind it. And people have a vague idea that George Mitchell is the father of this thing, but they didn't know who the people were in the field. George Mitchell was about 80 when this, uh, when this breakthrough happened to the Brennan Shell. So I thought um, I'd find out, and I thought uh, there might be some interesting characters um, behind it all, and there, there really were. So given that it was is a, a new field, I, I remember – I don't know, seven, eight years ago, like being introduced to energy myself and going into depth. And I remember it, it was hard to sort of get my bearings and figure out who was right, who was wrong, or what was credible, what wasn't. How did you find just um, entering this issue? Because there's so many different opinions and so many different people. So I um, was lucky to have a number of really um, smart and, and savvy and knowledgeable people guide me and some of whom, frankly, I couldn't even thank in my book because my book is somewhat controversial. Um, people in the industry, some people in the industry don't like it. Some, a lot of activists don't like it. Um, 
because I play it down the middle in some ways, and I reveal some behind-the-scenes things that happened to, to some of the characters, some of the famous people, Aubrey McClendon, Harold Hamm, etc. And I portray them the way I think uh, they are. They're great characters. They had brilliance and insight and foresight, uh, and they're responsible uh, for moving us towards energy independence, but they also could be reckless and you may not want necessarily to be friends with them. Um, but um, so they're great characters in some ways. I find them fascinating and important and um, they've changed the country. So um, thankfully I found enough people that were important in the business and um, I kind of told them I'm writing this book and it's going to be something that um, people are going to read. Um, I had uh, a publisher behind me and um, a track record. So I think they realized that, well, let's try to explain to Greg um, how this industry really works. And that's sort of my job to try to get them to talk. So um, my approach usually is I'm going to give you a haircut. You can sit still or you can move around, but I'm going to write this book or I'm going to write this article, as it were, because I write for the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal. And um, I, I have to, my job is to try to find knowledgeable, important people to talk and get them to talk. Was there any particular aspect of the profession or, or type of professional who was most helpful? I, you know, there were all there were all kinds of there were independent um, uh, producers. There were private equity people on Wall Street, and um, in other words, investors. Um, there were all kinds of people, landmen, veteran landmen who explained the business. Um, people that were early in some of these plays and. In, um, in the Eagleford, but um, even earlier, other places, the Barnett, there were people at Mitchell, working for George Mitchell, you know, half a dozen, maybe more people who were in, in the trenches working for George Mitchell, and people who worked for Harold Hamm in, in the Bakken early on, and EOG, and other kinds of places. So I, I also think that there isn't enough attention paid to some of the people in the field who do the breakthroughs, who are responsible for the breakthroughs. And so George Mitchell gets a lot of credit, and he should, but I, I want to spend a lot of time in my book uh, giving credit to the guys who don't get paid so much. They don't get paid the millions, but they're responsible for bringing us towards energy independence. So those are the kinds of people. So it was everybody from the investors to the um, engineers and, and geologists who were early. I mean, I write about a lot of these people, and you, you read in the book, it's, it's the guy who told Harold Hamm to take a look at the North Dakota um, side of the Bakken. That was Brian Hoffman, and no one had ever written about Brian Hoffman, or Nick Steinsberger, who decided to, or came upon the idea of uh, using a, a heavy, um, having more water in the fracking uh, um, con concoction than, than other people were using at the time, and um, so there were those kinds of people that really, and that to me are they're the heart of the book. Those those kind of people that don't get enough uh, of the limelight. Yeah, there's an interesting. Yeah, I find those dynamics really interesting because, uh, and you see it in the computer industry too. There's kind of one side that will say about someone like Steve Jobs, he did everything, and then another side that will say, no, he did nothing. It was just as much the guy on the assembly line. And part of what's fascinating in in looking at the reality of it is that. No, there's all kinds of intelligent people who, in an in integrated way, are making possible this kind of revolution. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, again, they get the billions, the Harold Hands of the world, and they deserve it. They clearly deserve it. But 
the people uh, I, I write about a good half dozen, maybe 10 or so people that worked for him and had brilliant ideas and pushed it. And uh, you need those guys. And you also have people behind the scenes that didn't agree with this thesis that um, Source Rock Source Rock could be so prolific. And I write about those guys, too, that, that were wrong. I mean, people within the Mitchell organization that um, protested and put up obstacles in front of people like Kent Bowker and Nick Steinsberger and told them that it's a waste of time, stop working on, on this, we're going to fire you kind of thing. And you know, that pr- provides a lot of the drama of the book. It's, it's, you're overcoming the experts in the industry who, who said, go anywhere but America, you know, go offshore, go Africa, Asia, etc. But it's also people within the companies that didn't believe in, in the ability to, uh, in, 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 they could in an economic way produce uh, meaningful amounts of, uh, of oil and gas from shale. So at the outset of the book, you talk uh, about what this, I mean, throughout the book, but especially at the outset, you, you do make some clarifying points about what this revolution is, because even the title of your book is, is The Frackers, and we've, we've been taught to think of all of the shale energy revolution as coextensive with uh, fracking, but you make the point that horizontal drilling is at least as important. So could you talk about the nature of this revolution? Yeah, and you know, quite honestly, my uh, publisher is the one who liked to, wanted the title yeah, of course. and <laughs> the subtitle. So fracking you know, is pretty controversial. And you know, people in this industry said, Greg, you cannot use the word fracking, CK, uh, in the book, and when when they saw when one, I'm not going to say who, but one of the one of the big guys, uh, one of the main characters, famous characters in the book, saw the title. He stopped talking to me, to me. He cut me off, and when another one saw the subtitle, he cut me off. Luckily, I had done I had done enough research by then and spent enough time with them, so I got I already had what I needed. But um, um, yeah, listen, um, it's it's um uh, an issue of controversy, and and um people. Uh, aren't thrilled with the use of it, um, but you know that's how it's sort of evolved. That's the use, the common use right now. CK. You know, you go, you go to Williston. I spent a good amount of time in Williston, and they're using CK and, and you know for, for, for the word fracking in, in local newspapers. So I figured uh, if they could, then I could. So, um, but that that wasn't my choice originally. But what about so there, there's sort of two things. One, and I've I deal with a lot of engineers, and I. You know, when I'm writing privately, I just use C, and but when publicly I use CK, and I think there's this <laughs> this perception, which I think is wrong, that that most of the problems in perception can be attributed to this K, and that if only it were C, then nobody would have succeeded at all, and I think and there would be no educational failure in this. I think it's it's a bit of a, a scapegoat, and also people don't necessarily realize that if this is the way it's spelled in the culture, you can't necessarily make a battle of that. Every single time you're doing, you you know you can ex- explain it. But th- there's also the so there's a CK point. Uh, but the more compelling point to me is is and I know that many people in the industry, including I can probably guess the per, you know the different people you're mentioning right now, uh, you know really make the point as you do that horizontal drilling is a key part of this and that that the right. focus on fracking undervalues that. Yeah, I didn't mean to avoid that question. Right. Um, so yes, that is true. Um, and you couldn't have had the revolution without both. Uh, the Mitchell guys didn't really do a good job of horizontal drilling, or they didn't make, make, make much progress. 
partly because they weren't allowed to, uh, as you read the book, a certain uh, senior executive uh, within the organization said he hated fracking and he hated shale, um, the focus on shale, and he didn't want him for sure. He didn't want him doing horizontal drilling there as well. But um, you needed both. So I write, I spend a chapter on a company called Oryx Energy. And at one point, they were the largest independent in the country. And they, they were early in a lot, a lot of amazing formations, exciting formations, the Bakken and um, some others. And they were among the earliest uh, practitioners of horizontal drilling, but they couldn't figure out or they didn't know how to, how to properly frack. And vice versa, the Mitchell guys didn't do horizontal drilling. So yeah, they were very successful in the Barnett Shale, but they weren't as successful as they could have been as guys like Devin and others were afterwards by combining the two. And yeah, that it's not just combining those two. It's also um, stage fracking. Um, so that was, that was another leap. Um, and, 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 and people tweaked on things. So the, the, the continental guys, Harold Ham's men, they didn't um, invent horizontal drilling or fracking, but they did a good job of figuring out how many stages was ideal, and that was about 30 for them. So there were tweaks and there were um, improvements, and a lot of it was trial and errors. And one of my big themes in the book is that this country gets criticism left and right for not innovating. And yet, under our noses, right when the financial world was collapsing and the housing market and the credit markets um, were cratering in 2008, we had a stunning um, resurgence in oil and gas due to U.S. American innovation. And it's a tribute to this country's resilience and this, its spirit, its continued spirit, and it's really kind of been a... Um, been eye-opening and very reassuring for me as an American as I travel the country to places like Pennsylvania and North Dakota and Oklahoma and Louisiana and Texas, etc. You meet people who are innovating and finding new layers as we speak and improving the way they, they drill. So it's been very reassuring for me. Yeah, it's one thing I like in the book is, is really the perspective uh, of this as an innovative industry and, and really ultimately a technology industry. We tend to associate technology with simply digital technology and yet what's more impressive than taking a piece of rock that used to be useless and figuring out how to use it to charge your iPhone? Um, yeah, or figuring out, I mean, again, I'm not an energy guy. For, to me, for them to be able to um, take a drill bit and hit a, a tie pin or something as small as that, um, well, well down below, you know, as much as 14,000 feet below the surface. That's amazing to me. So just as an observer and, and admirer of, of the improvements in the technology, yeah, this is technological innovation. I mean, I make the argument that we do a certain small number of things better than the rest of the world. We're really good. We Americans are really good at rapping. We're really good at making drones. We're good at making apps. And we're really good at fracking and horizontal drilling and, 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 and focusing on shale and everybody's playing catch up. So it's something to be proud of. Yeah, for sure. So let's, uh, let's start with, uh, um, what we can call the, well, just the shale energy revolution, uh, in, in natural gas. And who do you think it makes more sense to start with George Mitchell or Aubrey McClendon? Mitchell is your earlier. So let's start with him. Who is George Mitchell and what did he do distinctively? So Mitchell was running Mitchell Energy, mid-sized natural gas company, and in the early 80s, and he had been running it for, for um, decades, um, interesting guy, son of a Greek goat herd, 
his father was an immigrant from Greece and um, came over and had a really long Greek na- name. I'm going to butcher if I try to pronounce it. And uh, they pulled him off uh, from Ellis Island and they sent him to go work on the, on the building the, the rails uh, of this country, uh, um, the tracks and build the tracks. And his, uh, his foreman couldn't pronounce his name. So uh, he said what, to the foreman, well, what's your name? And he said, my name is Mike Mitchell. So he said, all right, I'm going to be Mike Mitchell. He switches name to Mike Mitchell, and his son is George Mitchell. And again, he was running a mid-sized energy company, natural gas producer. And they were responsible for as much as 10% of uh, the supply coming to Chicago. And he could see the writing on the wall that were running out of, uh, of gas, the reserves, and their production was dropping. And the only way they could survive was if they could figure out how to tap the shale formation in Texas, the Barnett Shale, and they spent about 18 years on it. And by then, Mitchell was about 80 years of age. He was not running things day to day. Um, there was a guy named Bill Stevens who was, and Bill Stevens was not enamored with shale drilling. And yet there's this little group of guys um, who I mentioned, I talk about in my book, and Mitchell kept encouraging them, and they kept working at it, and they finally made it happen. And so they proved in the late 90s that you could get uh, meaningful amounts of natural gas from shale in the Barnett. But others, people at the time said, like Aubrey McClendon and Tom Ward, who had started uh, Chesapeake Energy at the time, they said, yeah, okay, Mitchell, you figured out what was how to, how to, t- how to produce in the Barnett shale, but other shale um, formations are going to be much more challenging. Who's to say that you can do it elsewhere? And then they and others realized pretty quickly in the early uh, 2000s, um, whoa, this thing actually could work elsewhere. This, this method, uh, Nick Steinsberger's um, method of fracking, wow, it, it could really work elsewhere. And they were off to the races leasing land left and right. Give us a sense of the, the, the amount of this stuff that there is in terms of gas-bearing shale. Well, there are different arguments as to how much we've got there. So it became... Uh, popular to say we have 100 years worth of natural gas. Uh, even President Obama came around and said that publicly. I'm a little more skeptical. Um, I think we've probably got you know several generations worth. It's not clear. I mean, people in the fields know better than I do that. Uh, you know, the, the skeptics always say, "Well, shale, you know, the the um, decline rate is so so dramatic, and so obviously this is all a myth and or a Ponzi scheme," and which is just silly because we've already seen dramatic rise in natural gas and, and oil too. I mean, we've gone from 5 million barrels a day to 8 million and we're heading towards 11. Just the last couple of years, it's, it's been dramatic, the production increase. So to say that's a Ponzi scheme is just ridiculous. But we know, will it be 100 years worth of natural gas? Maybe not, but we've got a lot and we're going to start exporting it and it's going to keep things low relative to the rest of the world for a number of years. What about just the the physical quantity or the the acreage uh, of it? Because that's I think that's easier to divine than than the future necessary. Um, I find it difficult to divine because they're still finding new layers. I mean, if you look at the uh, the Bakken area, I spent a good amount of time there. The Three Forks is relatively new. You got the Scoop Formation in Oklahoma, which is relatively new. People think the Monterey. Um, could be exciting if you, you can handle the environmental issues and other issues in, in California. So um, I think that there's still are possibilities and they're still finding new formations. Um, I mean, it's not to say they're all going to be as exciting as what we've got. And 
Eagleford and Bakken are going to slow down at one point, but they're both, you know, up to a million barrels a day. Yeah, I guess what, what I find just very impressive looking at a map is that these things take up an incredible uh, amount of area. Yes, yes. Um, but, but as you know, I'm sure better than I do, that things have changed so dramatically with horizontal um, drilling and, and with the, the idea that they can actually tap source rock that unlike vertical drilling, unlike in the past when you were sort of guessing, they know where it is, and they know, and, and and it's not a kind of a playing battleship anymore, where you're hoping to to shoot and, and down and, and hit, get a direct hit. They they kind of know where it is much better than than in the past, uh, you know, past form, kinds of formations. So that makes it a lot more, um, a lot easier to project. Yeah, and I like to think of it. I, I don't know that people in the industry sometimes object to this, but I, I just like to think of it in terms of rows versus columns. That is, it's just this very, very long stretch, certain amount of space underground. And that's the, the idea that you can then drill horizontally obviously makes it, it so much more efficient than repeatedly drilling down vertically to, to you know, get cross sections of that row. Exactly right. And also, um, just in the past you know, a few years, the rigs have been reduced and there's more efficiency in the pads. Um, um, you know, Continental's been actually a pioneer in some of this stuff uh, in terms of making um, their drilling more efficient. So I, it's one more sign of the innovation that is so impressive to me. Uh, you get away from the coasts, which are the East Coast and West Coast are pretty discouraging places right now. Young people aren't finding jobs, and even when they go to good schools, and then you get out in the, in the, in the, the fields um, in, in small-town America, and, and it becomes reassuring to me anyway. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's let's talk about Aubrey McClendon. I have a particular interest in him, although substantially negative, because he has such interesting political dealings and dealings with, uh, well, particular in particular the Sierra Club. But what's what's his story? How did he become such a big player? So Aubrey McClendon um, grew up on the right side of the tracks, I would say, in Oklahoma. People. Think he grew up wealthy or rich. He did not, but he did come from an energy family. Uh, the Kermagee family is from his, on his mother's side, not his father. And his father worked in the business, but he wasn't a wildcatter. He was on the service side and it wasn't the sexiest area. But he grew up um, upper middle class, and people knew it. His friends knew it growing up. People in the area knew that he was from the Kermagee family. And uh, it was quite prestigious, and he set out. But he wasn't a guy who wanted to be a wildcatter. He um, studied history at Duke. He uh, met a young woman there from um, uh, um, Katie Upton, who comes from the Whirlpool family. Um, she comes from money. Um, she's actually related to um, Kate Upton. The um, yeah, that's the a fun. That's a fun tidbit in the book that I did not. Know. <laughs> yeah, I had to throw that in for my uh, two sons. Um, they enjoyed that a little fun fact. Um, and then he set out to not really early on. He was, he wasn't a, a driller or, um, a geologist or an engineer. That's what I find fascinating about a lot of the guys I write about. They sometimes didn't go to college like Harold Ham, or they didn't take geology or engineering. So what Aubrey did, he became a landman and, um, he specialized, uh, he came up that side of, the, of things and he liked history and maps and, and that helped in that regard. And he hooked up with a guy, another guy. And then he started saying, all right, I'm going to start doing things 
in a, in a small way. I'm going to do wildcatting and prospecting in Oklahoma, and that's how he got into it as a young man. And he bumped into another guy doing it in a small way named Tom Ward. And Tom Ward came from the other side of the tracks. He um, didn't grow up poor, but it was a tough childhood. His father was an alcoholic. His grandfather was an alcoholic. They were sort of notorious in their little town of Sealing, Oklahoma. Um, women were, were encouraged not to marry into the family. Um, and it was a, it was a di- more difficult childhood. He broke away. He married uh, a, a woman who came from much more stable, more religious background, and, and Tom became religious. Um, and he set out to do his own uh, prospecting. He also became a landman from the land side, but then he did prospecting. And he flamed out pretty quickly, and he found himself in a in a wheat field, um, trying uh, cutting wheat. Um, he was about 23 years old, and maybe 24, and he had a kid at home already. And it was a it was a difficult time, but he um, um, persevered, got back into the energy business, did it in a small way, found small deals, um, and he and Tom, he, I'm sorry, he and Aubrey McClendon um, 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 decided to start a company together, Chesapeake Energy, with about fifty thousand dollars, and they were really, really remarkably ambitious. Um, they chased a few different hot plays, um, and they flamed out a couple times. They rose and fell, rose and fell. Their company went public, and basically they just went public so that they could pay down debt. They had too many debts, and they were going to have to go bankrupt. They, they figured out a way to, to go public, and they paid down their debts that way. I write about all, all this, and, and basically by 2000, I don't want to um, belabor the story too much, by 2000, they, they Aubrey uh, McClendon and Tom Ward, made a huge bet that we were running out of natural gas in this country, and that natural gas prices were going to go higher. And they said, we're going to lease as much land as we can, get our hands on around the country. And they didn't necessarily believe that, again, that the techniques that Mitchell and his team figured out in the Barnett shale would work elsewhere. So they thought supply would be um, under pressure, and they saw how demand for natural gas was growing at utilities and different kinds of places. They did a lot of research. I, I write about all this. So then, so they made this huge bet, and for a while it really worked. So natural gas prices soared just like they predicted, and Tom Ward and Aubrey McClendon became billionaires, and they were acclaimed by around 2008. And um, they had these huge ambitions. They were trading on the side. They were running a hedge fund. They were investing in hedge funds. They were uh, trading futures because um, it wasn't enough. They were they had you know billions of dollars of their own stock, but they wanted more. And um, it all sort of fell apart for Aubrey in 2008 when his stock collapsed, Chesapeake Energy collapsed due to both the financial crisis and the fact that 2008 is when we started seeing signs that this shale production is for real. And it wasn't just in a few formations. It was all over the country. So natural gas prices collapsed. And I write about how Aubrey begged his um, his lender, uh, Goldman Sachs, not to give him a margin call. And in the end, he really sort of went from worth about $3 billion uh, to worth just a fraction of that. And then he was resilient, and he had some ways, and some the board was, was on the side. And he had ways to kind of rebuild his position and get Chesapeake going again. I write about that. But in the end, he just proved a little too aggressive and too reckless um, in, in a lot of his practices um, for the, with the company and elsewhere. You know, For one thing, they bought his map collection from him at a time when the company really couldn't necessarily afford it and have that much extra cash. Um, so, so in the end, they kicked him out.
And here's a guy who we, we, we have to thank for having vision that has helped um, pr- increase production to the point where we're paying a third to a half of what consumers are paying and business, businesses are paying in, in Europe and in Japan. And it's partly thanks to people like uh, Aubrey McClendon and Tom Ward. Tom Ward got kicked out of his own company, and yet um, they themselves, I would argue, weren't aware of, or especially Aubrey, they weren't fully focused on how much production was going to come from these shale formations and how it was going to keep a lid on natural gas prices. Um, he would argue that what he missed was the financial crisis, but um, you know, there's no financial crisis anymore, and yet natural gas prices are still about where they were, and it's due to this resurgence of natural gas prices. And some saw it coming, like Mark Papa of EOG, who I write about. But Aubrey, again, he's sort of a great character. He had a brilliant guy, remarkable insight, foresight, the most charming, charismatic guy you're ever going to meet. Uh, but he also was a little too aggressive. It's interesting how, you know, sort of the different people that go into a boom and how just by the nature of the system and their own mistakes, they can make a great productive contribution, but in the end be undone. So even though it seems like he has made an enduring contribution to something that we all benefit from, uh, he didn't benefit from it nearly as much because of certain uh, mistakes, and yet yet the, the enduring contribution is still here with us. That's exactly right. You could really make an argument that Maybe I'm, I'm overstating it, but you could make an argument that there was a lot of sort of Robin Hood element to this uh, era in that the people that made out the best were, the indivi- were individuals. Sometimes there were farm owners who leased land. I read about a guy named Buck Butler in the Eagleford who almost overnight went from owing millions of dollars and he was up late and he couldn't sleep. He was around 78 and... Um, scared about his future and his family's future, and he went for overnight from that to Conoco, coming and knocking on his door, and he's worth about thirty or forty million dollars. He unfortunately passed away recently, but he really his life was turned around by uh, this this era and this revolution. And there are a lot of people like that um, around the country, and and individuals finding jobs too. A lot of veterans, a lot of immigrants. I write about in my book. A lot of older people who finally got it right, and and when I say Robin Hood, you know, the people that lost the most, yeah, Aubrey um, was worth several billion dollars and now he's not. But it's also even more so guys like Exxon. I mean, Exxon raced back to America, realized that this revolution, this shale production was for real. And they bought XTO, um, which was a pioneer, an early pioneer in shale drilling. They spent about $41 billion for XTO at just the worst time. And it's worth nothing close to that anymore. So, um the some and a lot of a lot of the companies actually kind of spent too much. Um, um, Chevron is pulling out of the Eagle for after spending too much there. So, as you say, that it is sort of ironic and interesting. Some of the people, the smartest people, and some of the people responsible for this revolution, didn't necessarily make the most. You do you do have Harold Hamm. We have to note who um, I write about. He, he grew up just dirt poor, and we could talk about that, and now he's worth $14 billion. So there were some huge winners from this, from this era, but um, maybe it's the, the average guy who, who, pay, who likes his home and uh, heats his home with natural gas and uses electricity and um, you know, goes to the, um, get his car filled up, and, and despite our boycotting Iran and, 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 and activities going on in Syria and elsewhere, still only pays $3.5 um, at the tank. So, you know, maybe the average guy's been helped more so than the, the billionaire.
Yeah, I guess I guess I take that as primarily a, a benevolent thing. So if you look at the, and I think it's it's important to note because that benefit is not widely enough uh, acknowledged. I mean, for, in terms of how all of us benefit, and and we're benefiting in so many ways from you know from uh, manufacturing to gasoline prices to just everything in the economy that depends on and is and is bettered by energy. But also, you mentioned uh, some of the landowners, the the portrayal of landowners from uh, you know things like Gasland is simply that. Well, this and this is not what I'm going to say. Doesn't discount the fact that there are abuses, but it, it acts like these are just victims. And really, there's a huge element to which it's it's this incredibly fortuitous thing where your land, somebody had an innovation that, due to nothing by you, has made your land incredibly valuable. And I don't begrudge anyone for that, but it is this a really beneficent consequence that doesn't seem to be very appreciated. I agree. I think there are um, real issues. Um, there are towns that are sort of split. There's a lot of divisiveness, and some of it's sort of jealousy that this person got um, a huge amount of money to lease their land. My neighbor next door over, and I didn't for whatever reason. I cut a deal too early or too late, etc. And you know, you, you visit places like the Williston and uh, to visit Williston, and if you uh, rent a home, you don't own a home. You've seen your rent um, rise dramatically. You know, a three bedroom is about. $3,600 a month to rent in Williston. So there's frustration there. There's more crime and it's noisy. Um, I get all that. The roads are torn up. I get all that. But yeah, net, net, it's a benefit. People, um, young people have jobs. There are people moving to places that, that people used to flee from. Small town America has been helped. Um, it, it, people move into Williston for a reason, despite the fact that it's ridiculously hot in the, in the summer and it's so remarkably cold in the winter and it's not a, a pretty place because there is opportunity there. So it's been a net-net benefit uh, for landowners and, and for workers and it's helped people keep farms and um, stay in places. So, um, yeah, they're, 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 despite the downside, I would argue that there's been more uh, positives from this era. Yeah, I find remarkable parallels between what's going on now and just the beginning of the oil industry, where you it's got this idea where you know back then they a lot of most people thought well oil is just actually drippings from coal, so there's not a lot of it and it's not going to be economic to try to drill for it. And then uh, Edwin Drake and some others figured it out, and then there was just this rush uh, in the same way of of shale being essentially worthless, and then and then you have this rush. As well, and one of the challenges anytime you have a rapid development, not just in this but any field, is is how do you ra as rapidly adapt to it? Whether it's in terms of infrastructure or just adjusting jobs, and and I think they've done a lot well. But what are some things that you think, in retrospect, and not not to be too critical of people, but could have been done better, given that there's so much change, so much new economic activity in areas that didn't anticipate it. Well, there's a lot that could have done better. Some of it is um, maybe going a little slower and uh, testing things a little better. See, I would argue that, let's say Cabot and some others that made mistakes in um, places around Dimmick and Pennsylvania where there's been a lot of controversy, I don't think they were being callous and they wanted to ruin people's or some people's water. Um, I think that there hadn't been that much drilling in that part of the state for a long time and they were figuring out the geology and they made mistakes 
And um, so maybe had I gone a little slower, that would have been better. Also, the, the, the industry only now has become more transparent, not fully transparent, but more transparent when it comes to the uh, chemical composition uh, in the, in the, in the, when, when they frack um, and with frack focus, et cetera. So they could have done that much earlier. That really inspired a lot of nervousness and concern and um, conspiracy theories. Um, so, and just being more open in terms of community relations. So now Cabot is great and, and people in the, in the area I've talked to are bigger fans of, of how they operate. But early on, they and others didn't have a great uh, community outreach uh, effort. And it also helps now that the majors have come back. So the Exxons of the world are, are doing better at, at that. But yeah, there were uh, a lot of mistakes made early on. So far, we've talked about George Mitchell and Aubrey McClendon, who are in, in shale gas. Uh, let's talk about perhaps the uh, leader of, of shale oil, certainly the most financially successful person, Harold Hamm. What's, what's his story? Yeah, he's a real American story. He's a rags-to-riches story. So as I suggested earlier, he grew up dirt poor in a little town, Lexington, um, Oklahoma, he was so poor that uh, he had to help his parents in the field. They were sharecroppers picking cotton and watermelon and such, and they, they roamed around the whole region, actually. And he had to travel with them, and he had to work with them in the field until around Christmas time each year because it got, only then was it too cold for him to be able to help in the, in, the, in the fields, and he could start school around Christmas time each year. He was so poor that he didn't have a new pair of shoes until – his little shack of a home burned down one day and his neighbors were nice enough to, to give him a pair and it became a, a good day for him, even though his house burned down because he finally had a new pair of shoes. And he had this huge appetite, this dream of finding a lot of oil, sort of like old American wildcat or um, aspirations. And he um, began just sort of uh, servicing oil trucks, he cleaned out the, the, the muck and, and the bottom with a, with a long a rake and a broom, and he got into the business that way, but he, he never studied kind of geology, uh, but he st started doing that on his own, uh, on the side, took some courses, never got his degree, but took some courses, and he started uh, um, as a wildcatter, picking spots, and was very successful, and he, early on, said we should go up to North Dakota. He wanted to find a lot of oil, had this dream of oil. And they started on the Montana side. And again, he didn't have any kind of tremendous breakthrough or insight, eureka moment, saying we should go to North Dakota Bakken. One of his guys, Brian Hoffman, sort of suggested it. And they did. And they made it work in North Dakota. And they were early. They weren't the earliest. They, um, there were some bigger fields. They missed some of the biggest fields, EOG, thanks to a, a different immigrant from from. Um, Greece, um, a different guy, right, about they found the biggest field and, and they were early. But um, to his credit, um, Harold Hamm and, his, and Continental were fast followers and they scooped up more acres than anybody else in the Bakken area. And they went public. They Even as, as late as 2007, they were running out of money and in trouble and they tried to, to sell half or even more of their acreage. No one wanted it. No one wanted it. It's recently a 2000, I think it was six or seven. I have to look at my book. But then they said, all right, we're just going to stick with it and cut our expenses. And they had cut salaries and, and, and fired some people. And then they um, went public 
And, and, and I write about how even then people weren't uh, on board. Brian Hoffman himself, this guy who discovered or encouraged them to go after the North Dakota Bakken region, he sold his shares in the company right away because he got nervous. He didn't think that company would have much of a future, but Ham did. He was just, had this remarkable confidence, self-confidence and optimism about what they were doing. And he pushed those guys to figure it out, and they did. And they're producing so much oil now that his stock is just soaring. And again, he's worth fourteen over fourteen billion dollars. My book went to print in uh, July, end of July. I passed it in, and now he was worth around, around twelve billion. Then he's made two billion dollars <laughs> since the end of July. Uh, he's so wealthy that he's unfortunately going through a divorce right now. But his wife is going to walk away with more money than Oprah Winfrey. So it's a real American success story in a lot of ways. I'm curious to just delve in a little bit more in terms of his his basis for going to North Dakota because you talk about uh, his this this dream he has from the beginning and clearly he's he's extremely driven. You mentioned that he's optimistic, but surely there must be some insight uh, behind this because not that many people are able to. I mean, this is an amazing achievement. Yeah, he. Um... Well, I guess the, the larger issue is he believed in innovation. He believed his guys could figure out the right number of stages for, for fracking. So for a while, it wasn't working because they, um, they didn't do it in the right number of stages. They, um, they had some other improvements. And he had the ability to, to withstand the, the setbacks and to encourage his people. And um, it's hard to explain why he believed so much. Um, he just did. And he, he believed in America. He believed in his, in his guys. He believed in the ability of the men in the field to, to innovate. And some of it's from putting pressure on them and telling them you have to figure it out. And they did. Trial, trial and error was really key and, and, in this whole revolution. There weren't that many kind of breakthroughs. And some of it was kind of seeing what other people were doing and um, combining horizontal drilling with fracking, which is what EOG did early on in the Bakken and then Ham had his people do it. So it's, it's watching your competitors and rivals and learning from them and improving and tweaking that. So I'm not sure um, there's any kind of deep secret as to why he believed uh, so much. He had a lot of success in his career finding oil where people said he couldn't. So he, that happened in Oklahoma. I, I read about different places, and that lesson for him was paramount. And he said, here's one more place that... They, we can find it as well. So we've, we've talked about three major figures. There are obviously many more in the book. Uh, I'm curious, is there one of the, the frackers, so to speak, that you admire most? Um, I won't say admire most. The one that I find quite interesting is Sharif Suki. He's not a wildcatter per se. Um, he knew very little about the energy business until around 2000 or so. He was an investment banker for a while. He's an immigrant from, from Lebanon. Again, a lot of immigrants in my, in my book, a very American story. And he didn't know much about energy. He got involved because uh, he believed what the experts said, that we, were, that we were running out of energy, running out of natural gas. So he and his company, Chenier Energy, um, built these remarkably expensive import terminals and for a while, they were making a lot of money. The stock was going up, and Sharif was on top of the world because natural gas prices were skyrocketing, and he, they were going to import 
natural gas to America. So it looked like a gold mine. And then lo and behold, all this production came from uh, all of the shale uh, formations and his stock collapsed. And he uh, went from being worth probably $75, $100 million to worth very little. And he could have thrown in the towel. He could have given up at that point. His investors, his own investors, his own backers had given up on him. And he kind of roped the dope and, uh, like a boxer and kind of persevered. And this whole story is a, is a story of perseverance, an American perseverance. And he kept the company alive and he, and he realized that, wait, hold on a second. If we're producing so much uh, natural gas, maybe we should be exporting it. And people thought it was a crazy idea. And, and, and Aubrey kind of inspired him too, and I write about that. But he figured out how to do it. He figured out how to get the um, approvals before anybody, uh, everybody else. So his company, uh, Shinera Energy, is going to be the first in 2015 from uh, the lower states to export. And he's worth about $350 million today. And I get, again, I just like the uh, the theme of the of the perseverance and not giving up, which is what um, a lot of people had done, giving up on, on America and on our on our oil and gas production here. So perseverance is one of the lessons that uh, that you draw here. Uh, are there any other lessons as we start to wrap up that uh, you hope people draw from the book and draw from learning about this, you know, ongoing part of American history? Um, I would say there's the uh, importance of of innovation. There's the um, the compromise that some people are working on, working with activists. So EDF, Environmental Defense Fund, is working fun, is working with a lot of producers, Exxon and others, to craft the right standards um, and improve the way, uh, reduce emissions of methane, etc. And that's a real um, lesson, I think, for for the future. Um, I also think that um, there there are lessons in terms of what America does better than others. So we've got the um, profit motive, which I think is really healthy and private industry. And these guys wanted to get rich and more power to them as long as you're not harming people. And sometimes they did, unfortunately, but usually they didn't. Um, the profit incentive is really healthy. And and it's a reason why we've been able to lease land in this country. We own, in most places we own, uh, homeowners own their own land and that's healthy. So there's a lot that we have in this country that people don't have that we have an advantage over others. And we've got capital markets here and infrastructure that others don't have. And we've gotten some natural resources too. We've got more fresh water than some other places. The geology is a little kinder than in places like China. So to me, it gives us a chance as, as a country to, to be, uh, have some economic dominance um, superiority over the next number of years because of these American advantages. Well, you stress the profit motive. You mentioned quickly, but I think it's important just for people to note the, the issue of property rights and that people can own their own land because we've uh, one guy we've had on the show a couple of times, oh no, only once, I guess, but I've talked to him a bunch of times is Mike Lynch, who uh, for some reason the New York Times lets him write in their paper, even though he's incredibly <laughs> pro-oil. And one thing he stressed when he was on the show is just the amount of geological knowledge we have in this country versus other countries and how that's tied to property rights. Yeah, for sure. And um, others are playing catch up when it comes to, I mean, you look at the shale formations in other countries and they're, they've got a lot. They've got some cases more than ours. And yet, will they be able to catch up? I'm a little skeptical. When I started my project, I started the book, I thought America was just the first chapter and everybody else is going to have their own resurgence. And they may, and, I'm, and I really hope they do. I mean, the only way to combat global warming is if China can start fracking and move over 
um, shift to cinema shale. I'm sorry, it's coal production. Um, but yeah, we've got this history. It's it's an American uh, industry, and um, others, obviously, Saudi Arabia <laughs> do their share of uh, oil production. But it's an American industry, and we should be proud of it. And um, the innovation that continues uh, is pretty impressive. So, where can listeners find out more about you and the book? Um, the book's available in places like Amazon.com. Uh, I've got a website, um, Gregory. Uh, Zuckerman.com. Uh, they can ask me questions. They can email me as well. I love hearing ideas, things that I've missed in the book or in our articles and things that I should be working on. So um, my email address is Gregory.Zuckerman at WSJ.com. And you can tweet me into, on, I'm on Twitter as well. So I love the interaction. I love hearing constructive criticism and critiques and um, things that um, I should be working on. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd, lo I'd love to hear from people. But yeah, it's available on Amazon and all, all bookstores as well, the Frackers it's called. And um, I hope people enjoy it. All right. Thanks so much, Greg, for coming on. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks again to Greg Zuckerman for coming on the show. Uh, one thing that, that Greg talked about at the end was he uh, made the offer to everyone to contact him via email. I believe it's greg.zuckerman at wsj.com, which uh, I appreciate a lot and, and I hope you'll take advantage of uh, if and when you read the book. Uh, you know, if you like it, don't like it, mixed feelings, love it, whatever, um, I think it's just great. It's a great opportunity to be able to communicate with uh, authors in that way. So um, I, th I think it's just fantastic when people make themselves accessible. And I know the book has generated a lot of controversy. Certain people really like it, certain don't. Certain people in the book don't agree with the way that they've been portrayed. And um, with a lot of the controversies, I'm not in a position to know, to, to take a position exactly, except to say that it's it, it's fascinating stuff. The book is, is very well written. And, uh, you know, I definitely recommend uh, checking it out along with other associated resources and, and draw your own conclusions. But, um, you know, it's, it's good that we finally have books out about this as against, say, the kind of gasland type things, which are, are, are worse, uh, are worse than useless. So, so really fascinating stuff. And thanks again to Greg for coming on the show. Uh, since I'm, I'm sick right now, and since I think we covered a lot during the interview, I'll wrap up with that as always. If you have questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Make sure to check out the website. Subscribe to the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. You can get t-shirts now at ilovefossilfuels.com, newly discounted, and you can order lots of them in an even more, in an even more uh, discounted way. And yeah, that's it. So next week, we'll be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.